evokes Duncan Kinney here to say that the Progress Report is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network. And a pod on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from our friends at the Alberta Advantage, where they dive into the legacy of Roy Romanow, the NDP Premier of Saskatchewan, for a whole last decade between 1991 and 2001. Also, if you like what we do with the Progress Report, please support us. There is a link in the show notes, or you can just go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card, and donate $5, 10 $15 a month, whatever you can afford. It really does mean a lot to us. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. Recording today here in Embiskwajiwa Skygan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory, on the beautiful banks of the Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River, which, of course, is currently frozen solid. Well, not all the way through, but, you know, the top at least. Uh, joining us today from Montreal is Michael Buchert. Michael is a vice president with Canadians for Peace and Justice in the Middle East, as well as a man with a PhD in sociology from Carleton University. And Michael... Today you actually get to use your PhD in a non-academic setting. How do you, how do you feel about that? Well, that is quite a treat. I really appreciate you having me on. So yeah, we're we're having we have Michael on today because today we are talking about how the conservative movement in Canada supported apartheid South Africa, that is the the, the apartheid state of South Africa. But before we get into that, Michael, uh, how are you doing? Have you managed to dodge Omicron? It seems like this particular wave is incredibly ubiquitous and like more people I know and more people in my orbit are getting a hit with it. Is that the same, same for you? I've been pretty, uh, pretty good. I haven't been sick and, uh, you know, I, I know of some people who have, but it hasn't hit home uh, that hard for me yet. Uh, in Montreal, the government does have pretty intense restrictions. We're back under our curfew and uh you know bars and things are closed down again so we're sort of living uh like we were a year ago to an extent uh but yeah in spite of that i i do hear of people getting sick so it does seem like it's definitely more transmissible and we're seeing that quebec seems to love th this curfew thing as a as a uh, covid restriction and i don't know if any other province has really jumped on it the way quebec has i don't really know what it does to stop the spread of covid i don't either. think there's any evidence that it does anything but it's certainly quieter out at, in the evening so i mean that's that's not too bad i got to go home uh to saskatoon for the first time in two years to see my family and i think they have the least restrictions in the country or around there so and then and then i got back to montreal just as they were putting the curfew in two hours before new year's eve so it's been weird it's been pretty weird yeah yeah, you can say that. It's it does feel like two years ago, replayed again. But enough fucking COVID Omicron doom chatter. The reason we're here today talking about conservative support for apartheid set South Africa is because over the holiday, we saw the deaths of both um, Ted Byfield and just a few days later uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and you know honestly, putting those two people in the same sentence. Uh, hurts because Ted Byfield was, you know, a putrid, hateful piece of shit. Uh, one of the worst people that Alberta has ever produced. Uh, and if you don't know, he was a journalist uh, and the publisher of a variety of hateful rags. He called residential schools a genocide myth. He constantly fomented hatred against queer folks. And he was a, a proud and longtime supporter of a part of the apartheid state of South Africa. He's also 
essentially one of the key figures in the formation of the Reform Party, which eventually became the Conservative Party of Canada. And yeah, just an all-around piece of shit, and the world is a better off place with him dead. But then, a few days later, there was uh, the death of someone that was actually like sad and not something to be celebrated, and that was the death of Desmond Tutu. Desmond Tutu was, of course, the Archbishop of Johannesburg, and he was a fierce opponent of apartheid South Africa. He was an instrumental figure in eventually bringing the regime down. And before we get into the podcast, uh, Michael, do you have any favorite memories of Desmond Tutu? I know you've studied kind of, uh, you know, the movement uh, against apartheid South Africa quite deeply as part of your PhD, but like, is there any kind of Desmond Tutu memory you want to highlight? Well, I I think that, yeah, Desmond Tutu was such a prominent moral voice uh, for the anti-apartheid movement, and it really is uh, sad to see him go. I, I do want to maybe just give a shout out to some of the work he's been doing since the fall of apartheid. Uh, is He's sort of kept up his energy and has focused it elsewhere. He's He's been, you know, campaign, campaigning for many different struggles, including Indigenous rights in Canada. Uh, but he's also been very outspoken about human rights in Palestine, uh, which he said that in some respects, uh, the situation facing Palestinians is worse than under apartheid in South Africa. He even wrote an article in 2014 urging people to support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, uh, urging people to basically take up the same nonviolent strategies that were used in the struggle against apartheid in South Africa and redeploy them and use them uh, to bring freedom for Palestinians as well. So uh, that's a part of his uh, legacy that you know has moved me a lot. And you're not likely to have seen any of the, of the obituaries in the Globe and Mail or National Post or elsewhere. So I, I, I did want to bring that uh, to people's attention. He was a, a very important voice. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, some of the like hardcore Zionist, you know, pro-Israel types were like actually on their hind legs calling Desmond Tutu, you know, an anti-Semite after right. he died, which was just like, in you know, the peak insanity. But I think my favorite Desmond Tutu memory, I have a couple, but one is definitely like in 2014 as well, he came out against, um, you know, the oil sands and he mm. was st- stood in solidarity with like, you know, land defenders and people who are struggling for and, and fighting for indigenous sovereignty with respect to how their lands are developed. And um, there was like, uh, <laughs> who was it? It was some journalist who pulled up the like op-ed page of the Calgary Herald uh, in 2014, like the day after, or a couple days after Desmond Tutu, like kind of very publicly called out the, the oil sands and the oil sands companies. And it was essentially like four fifths of it was dedicated to blasting Archbishop Desmond Tutu as like out of touch or like didn't know what the hell he was talking about or an idiot. And it's like, fuck, the Calgary fucking Herald is just evil and must be destroyed. That's <laughs> amazing. That's the same kind of stuff they were saying about him back in the back in the 80s. Oh, the same thing as Ted Byfield. I mean, it's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, right? Like like literally 20, 30 years ago, Ted Byfield would be saying the exact same shit about Desmond Tutu, but but not about because he said mean things about the oil sands, but because he was standing up against apartheid South Africa. And I, am I correct in, in remembering that that, uh, that 2014 article or whenever it was, uh, it was sort of saying, you know, how dare he criticize the oil sands or the tar sands when the, uh, you know, look at the resource industry in South Africa. Why doesn't he criticize that? Of course, uh, suggesting yes. that this man who dedicated his life to justice in in South Africa should should really criticize, you know, his own 
his own backyard. Like, the classic, like, so do you know South Africa has problems, Desmond Tutu? How dare you? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, amazing. Like, a classic. I mean, my and my other kind of favorite Desmond Tutu quote is I, I pulled this up after his death. And it's a quote from um, a book, The Spirit of Freedom, South African Leaders on Religion and Politics, published by the University of California Press in 1996. And they have a, a chapter uh, in this book dedicated to Desmond Tutu. And this quote from him is, quote, I have the greatest admiration for people like Joe Slovo and Chris Hani. I walk arm in arm with them. Communists and Christians have cooperated in the struggle against apartheid, and I see no reason why we cannot work together for justice in the future. And just a bit of context there, Joe Slovo and Chris Hani were not just communists uh, and part of the South African Communist Party, but they were also the leadership of the armed wing of the African National Congress, an organization we'll get into a little bit later. And it's that quote, I think, shows why someone like Ted Byfield and his ilk and his supporters would have despised Desmond Tutu. And that's why we're, and this is partially why we're doing this this podcast is because after Ted Byfield died and then, you know, you had Ted Jason Kenney on his hind legs saying, oh, it's a sad day. A political legend has died, blah, blah. I can't remember his exact quotes. His exact right. words doesn't fucking matter. But then a few days later, Desmond Tutu dies and Jason Kenney's back on his hind legs saying, oh, yes, a legend has passed. It's very sad, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, motherfucker. Like, Ted Byfield was pro-apartheid South Africa. Yeah. You, you cannot one for one day praise Ted Byfield and two days later praise Desmond Tutu. It speaks to an incredible amount of historical amnesia on the part of the conservative movement, you know, uh, and purposeful, right? They would much rather not remember this part of their history, but that is partially why we're here today, Michael. Partially why we're here is to remember these, is to remind these motherfuckers that they were on the wrong side of history and a lot of them did support apartheid South Africa. Ted Byfield (laughs) was no aberration. Uh, the conservative movement here in Canada, especially the Reform Party, were vociferous, vociferous supporters of the apartheid state of South Africa. And so that is where you come in. What is the, the title of your PhD thesis and why is it relevant to today's discussion? Uh, sure. Yeah. The title of my thesis, which uh, I finished that up uh, actually two years ago today. Uh, so that's neat. Uh, boycotts and Backlash, Canadian Opposition to Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions. Uh, or BDS movements from South Africa to Israel. And basically I'm looking at, uh, yeah, the different boycott campaigns that have that have really uh, taken place in Canada, specifically focused on um, human rights in, in South Africa in the 1970s and 80s, and then the current uh, boycott of Israel today. And looking at some of the, uh, you know, specifically the backlash, the organized opposition. Uh, from domestic lobby groups who are opposed to companies divesting from companies in these uh, that are you know complicit in these human rights abuses, but also uh, state-run propaganda campaigns. And South Africa had a had poured tons of resources into international propaganda. And so, looking at these dynamics, try to get a sense of why did the anti-apartheid movement uh, appear to have been so successful and popular uh, while the current uh, boycott of Israel, though it has many of the same features, uh, is uh, it's much harder to, to, to get it going and it, it struggles to become popular. So I think why it's relevant, as you already said, there's a lot of historical amnesia here where at least certainly the way that I grew up thinking about or I guess learning about the history of apartheid and the anti-apartheid movement was sort of that everyone in Canada was on the same side, uh, that you know clearly apartheid was was a hideous uh, moral evil 
and uh you know everyone was on the same side and we forced the end of that uh and now you know when someone passed away desmond tutu everyone across the political spectrum comes out to say how much you know their legacy means to them when you know 30 years ago these people many of the same people were were opponents of of people like desmond tutu and actually weren't on the same side at all there was it was uh intensely contested in canada especially within the conservatives the conservative movement but not uh, exclusively there and so yeah i think uh and and you know further uh i think even more disturbing is when some of these people uh pass away journalists like uh, ted byfield or like peter worthington you you see these very glowing tributes and obituaries that sort of i mean peter worthington I think the Globe and Mail said he he stood up for the little guy or something along those <laughs> lines. And like this is one of the biggest boosters of apartheid South Africa and Canada. So, yeah, there's, there's this amnesia that that gives a pass to all of these people who stood on, on the wrong side. Uh, you know, they were on the wrong side when it actually mattered. So. So, yeah. So I'm really glad that we have a chance to talk about this today. Yeah. And let's let's get into the, the realities of, of what you called like a. Uh, historical moral evil of apartheid. I mean, I was born in 1983. I'm, you know, nearing my 40s, and I and still I was on the tail end. Uh, I was only a kid in 1994 when like Mandela was elected president. Like, w- you've studied this, right? What were the defining features of apartheid South Africa? What was it like? Why was it this grand moral evil? Right. So I guess uh, <laughs> uh, to try to sum up apartheid succinctly, it's it was a regime of institutionalized racial discrimination, uh, which was officially launched in 1948, but it built on previous patterns of segregation in the country. And there are different elements to it that I think sometimes get lost. There's petty apartheid, which is things like the segregation of public space. It's the, the really obvious forms of discrimination that I think is sort of more stereotypical. People sort of uh, separate roads, separate doors, separate bathrooms, like yeah, bathrooms. separate park benches, that kind of thing, which are the, the more obvious in your face stuff. Uh, but there's but there was this other aspect which was grand apartheid, which was really about the separation of racial groups, these new classifications of racial groups into different social spaces, into different territory, even. So it came with severe limitations on freedom of movement. It came with restrictions on the ability to own land in certain areas. It came with restrictions and even the elimination of voting rights for black South Africans. Um, and and there was this sort of strategy of trying to, uh, to divide society according to these racial groups and to um, eventually uh, uh, create separate states for, for different peoples. So uh, with the homeland system, uh, the South African government created these, these homelands or these Bantu stands, which were supposed to be sort of the traditional homeland of these different tribal peoples. And so they divide Black South Africans into 10 different racial groups, put them in 10 different uh, territories and say, this is where you belong. You don't belong in in white South Africa itself. And that would justify denying them citizenship and other and other rights. Um, that came with a lot of uh, mass evictions and forcible displacement, moving people out of white areas into these, you know, so-called homelands. And the idea was that these would eventually become nominally independent, uh, almost like countries. Like people would think of it as, uh, you know, 10 or 12 different nation states 
uh, a 12 state solution. Uh, and that this would sort of solve the problem of apartheid for white South Africa because they would have, you know, given up their responsibility for these people who are denied rights by saying they can fulfill their political rights in their own society, in their in their own homeland. And so it obviously nobody bought this. <laughs> Almost no, nobody sort of fell for this. Clearly, this was the continuation of apartheid and uh it clearly con continued to be a vast injustice and the liberation movements were insisting on a goal of, of uh, one person, one vote in a single country. So, so this idea never really uh, won, won anybody over, but that's sort of the historical tra trajectory of, of apartheid. And because it was white supremacy, white minority rule over a black majority, it was, um, you know, incredibly violent. And there were multiple massacres and uprisings, uh, you know, where, you know, South African police simply murdered <laughs> many people. Yeah. Uh, in 1960, there was the Sharpeville massacre. And I know you wanted to mention the, the Soweto uprising. Yeah. So so one thing that really, uh, I think, uh, sticks in my mind as a particularly horrifying case was in 1976 in Soweto, tens of thousands of students, uh, black students were uh, going out in the townships, protesting the imposition of um, of Afrikaans instruction in in schools, of being forced to speak uh, to be taught in the language of the of their oppressors, uh, and so they were out. They were protesting, and they were met by extreme police violence. Uh, I think hundreds of people were killed. The the South African police shot directly at at children. One of the first people uh, to be hit was Hector Peterson. He was only twelve years old, and he died. Um, there's actually a really, a really great memorial to him and museum in Soweto, the Hector Peterson Memorial, that uh, is worth checking out if you're ever in the country. But uh, yeah, I think that was one of the events, along with uh, the Sharpeville massacre, that really got the attention of of public opinion around the world. It was broadcast, you know, on on the news. People finally got to see sort of really how violent uh, apartheid was, and kind of galvanize the anti-apartheid movement uh, you know again it, for for whites uh for white society south africa was basically a democracy but for everyone else it operated as a dictatorship yeah and there are two events that really stick out for me and one is um the assassination of ruth first by the south african police via a letter bomb uh, they sent a letter bomb to her uh, she was a professor at a university in mozambique and the South African police murdered her via letter bomb. And Ruth First was an incredibly uh, influential figure in the anti-apartheid movement, um, just an, uh, an investigative journalist and an organizer uh, with the Communist Party and then the various other kind of iterations of the Communist Party because it was outlawed, of course. And just the the fact that they would go to that, to those ends, to mm -hmm. uh, murder one of their, like, you know, ideological enemies you know, via like terrorism, like they unibombered her essentially right. uh, is, is just insane. I would encourage you to look up Ruth first as a figure. She has written some incredibly influential uh, work on, you know, working conditions and social movements in South Africa. And the other case that jumps out to me about the kind of, you know, the atrocities and the lowlights of this uh, South African apartheid regime was the case of uh, Wouter Bassin, or uh, as he is sometimes referred to, Dr. Death. This was the man who was in charge of South Africa's chemical and biological warfare program. <laughs> and uh, there is a Behind the Bastards episode on Wouter Bassin that was published in January 2020 that uh, goes into incredible detail 
about this incredibly evil person. Um, I, I will give a very brief summary now, but essentially this this man who was responsible for the, the South African chemical and biological warfare program was was deeply embedded in these assassination attempts of, you know, uh, African National Congress or other anti-apartheid um, activists abroad. Uh, he was deeply involved in uh, murdering uh, hundreds of uh, SWAPO. So SWAPO is the Southwest African People's Organization, which was a black liberation movement in Namibia. And uh, he was he was he provided the poison. Essentially, what they like to do to inflict terror was to inject a massive amount of muscle relaxants into captured SWAPO captives, and they would die because their lungs would eventually collapse. It was an incredibly brutal and gruesome way to slowly kill someone. Uh, he developed t- toxic uh, nerve gas. He developed toxic botulinum stuff that could like a liter of this stuff could would kill like a million people. He. Um, he was, uh, and the reason why actually it's related to the Soweto uprising, post Soweto uprising, the South African government tasked Obuder Bassin to actually start up their chemical and biological warfare program because they realized that like they couldn't just go around murdering everyone <laughs> like they did at the Soweto uprising and that they needed to be, you know, a quieter way of doing it. And um, one final Dr. Death anecdote, which is that. One of the things that started in the 80s was a program that they started that was an attempt to sterilize black women via a fake vaccine. And um, essentially, they were trying to, you know, slowly commit genocide on the black South African population via stealth sterilization. Of course, uh, they quickly realized that they were unable to target only black women with their research, but that didn't stop them. They of course continued. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but anyways, I encourage you to read that episode and, um, or listen to that episode. It's quite gruesome and good. And, um, but that's just, again, we could talk about the atrocities of the South African regime for a long ass time, but we're not here to talk about that way. We do want to get to Canada eventually, but before we get to Canada, we also need to set the stage for who the players were on the black liberation side. And so who, Michael, who were the African National Congress and how did it work against the South African apartheid regime? So in brief, the the ANC, the African National Congress, really was the main liberation movement coming out of South Africa. It was non-racial. It had an inclusive vision of the future of South Africa, and it involved the participation of people from all backgrounds, um, defying the segregation of society. Uh, It was uh, ultimately banned by the South African government in 1960, forcing the movement to go underground. Key figures in this included, of course, Nelson Mandela, many other people. Uh, And then shortly after, it formed a guerrilla wing uh, to to carry out armed struggle. Uh, This was called Spear of the Nation. Uh, And uh, so, so it was carrying out armed struggle on the one hand, and it also developed a international essentially program of going to other countries and encouraging people around the world to adopt uh, boycotts, to to push for sanctions against uh, the South African government as a way to to isolate the country and to, uh, yeah, to put pressure on the country to help in their struggle against apartheid. So there were were lots of other groups uh, that were important, but, uh, you know, some of them were more pan-Africanist liberation groups and others were, uh, you know, the trade union movement was really important. But the ANC, I think, became uh, really the central reference point for the anti-apartheid movement. They came to represent the voice of South Africans themselves and were very, you know, even if people didn't necessarily like 
uh, everything about the AMC, including its close links to uh, communism or whatever. People, uh, you know, may, maybe they were uncomfortable with armed struggle. They were still willing to uh, give full support to the AMC and to uh, to push for for their demands of total economic sanctions. Yeah, and I think it's worth taking a minute to just appreciate the scale and success of this international anti-apartheid solidarity movement, right? Like we, it was churches, it was uh, labor movements, it was random people in the street, it was schools, it was elected officials, it was nearly ubiquitous in the 80s. Yeah, it was really incredible. And I, th- I think one of the most incredible parts about it is that, yeah, you had mainstream churches like the United Church. You had uh, labor unions, you had um, uh, mainstream international development organizations like Oxfam Canada or, uh, or CUSO. These groups were giving financial support to the ANC and other regional liberation movements as they were engaged in armed struggle, uh, which is something that I just don't think you'd see. Uh, I just don't think you'd see that today. It seems like it's from a completely another era, but that was how... Uh, important the ANC was uh, as as a figure that uh, people were willing to support it even as it was engaged in you know acts of sabotage and violence against the apartheid state. And because this movement was so large and successful, uh, the apartheid state of South Africa reacted right, and they created this huge international propaganda machine to, to try and counter the ANC. It largely wasn't very successful and it was very easy to kind of see what was being done, but it doesn't mean that they didn't fucking try. And, yeah. and reading your thesis, I was really struck by the similarities in the propaganda war that the, the apartheid state of South Africa employed that are so similar to the efforts, you know, seen that were either running either in advance of or concurrently with the efforts we saw by like big tobacco to like try mm-hmm. and contain, you know, the, the fact that, you know, cigarettes cause cancer or oil companies kind of like spinning, you know, climate denial or uh, the, even the, the similarities that we're seeing to like the oil companies, um, you know, the, and the ethical oil shit we're seeing for out of Alberta and the war room right now, you know, they were using AstroTurf, South Africa was using, you know, South Africa AstroTurfing they were funneling money to front groups. They were finding wedge issues and wedge figures within affected communities. They were flooding the zone when it came to like op-ed pages and letters to the editor. It really was, you know, a, a modern propaganda war. They were buying up or creating newspapers and magazines and foundations and nonprofit. They had created a whole ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us uh, through kind of a brief summary of the, the these various propaganda efforts by the apartheid South Africa? And then we'll segue into our, our Canadian, the Canadian allies that they had. Yeah, I mean, especially after 1960 with the Sharpeville massacre, uh, the South African government was very concerned about its deteriorating reputation around the world. And so it just just uh, poured resources into these international propaganda campaigns. But this really intensified in the 1970s when you have officials um, coming up with this plan for what they called a propaganda war that would be a covert war. And it would be through the creation of different front groups, including magazines, think tanks, NGOs, and foundations, um, which would be funded and directed by South Africa, but without being openly tied to the government. So um, for example, well, there's so many examples, but one like the International Freedom Foundation in Washington in the late 80s was a was a front organization for the South African government and had oh, lots wow. of 
I love freedom. I, 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 I want to learn doesn't. more about their work. And, and uh, you know, they had like prominent individuals on their board of directors, and they may have not even known that it was a front organization. Uh, it might have even been been kept from them. So, well, so che- the checks cash all the same, I suppose, right? Exactly. So, so, so it was very stealthy. Uh, but in addition to that, there were other black ops, which are, I guess, more menacing. Um, you know, the, the South African government was infiltrating anti-apartheid groups. It was assassinating ANC leaders. Uh, you mentioned Ruth first, but also I think of Dulcie September in Paris, France. Although we don't know exactly who pulled the trigger on that one. It's pretty clear that she was on the kill list for the South African government. And the, the South African government has been confirmed in uh uh, at, uh, violent attacks on offices in other countries in Europe. So, um, so, so that stuff was going on as well, as it really treated this, really treated it as as a war on the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and in Canada, it, locally, in the late 1980s, the South African Embassy actually operated a front network of 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 uh, phony Friends of South Africa groups, which it financed and operated. Uh, it was disguised as a grassroots m- movement. And as part of that, the NBC actually set up fax machines in the houses of volunteers in different cities, uh, gave them directions for how to write letters to the editor, that kind of thing, other responses uh, to, you know, for, for this organization to do. Uh, and it also asked volunteers to infiltrate and spy on the anti-apartheid groups in different cities. So this was the kind of stuff the South African government was up to. Um, in addition... You know, that's just the government. That's in addition to all the genuinely grassroots pro-South Africa lobby groups that did form in Canada. Uh, and there were, I guess most of them were composed of, of essentially business people, political elites, academics, uh, and that kind of thing, uh, who would sort of speak out, write letters, that kind of thing, uh, have, have luncheons to learn more about South Africa. Yeah, I mean, I think those people fell into either two camps, right? They were either like international businessmen types who had business interests in South Africa, or they were just out and out like white supremacists, white yeah. nationalist types. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and this brings us, of course, to Ted Byfield and his Confederates. Um, you know, th- there was this, uh, this international effort by South Africa had friends and allies in Canada, uh, one of whom was Ted Byfield. So why don't we run down the list of kind of like known supporters of apartheid South Africa. Let's start with Ted Byfield. What do you got on him? Sure. Um, and, and I'll just say like up front that not, uh, not everyone who supported apartheid was a conservative necessarily. Like there were again, sort of business and economic reasons why liberals and other elites would be, uh, you know, oh, yeah. Cap- capital had a, a vested interest in the ongoing existence of apartheid South Africa. Too. Exactly. One person who was a director of a pro South Africa group was actually a former liberal cabinet minister who was married to the governor general at the time, uh, Jean Sauvé. Uh, that's a whole nother story. But yeah, within the conservative movement, I would say that South Africa was a motivating cause. It was sort of one of the key foreign policy issues animating uh, conservatives at the time, especially in a time of, of division with between conservatives, it became sort of a wedge issue. So especially for people who are more aligned with the uh, Reform Party, uh, I, I would say really adopted the issue of South Africa and, and took it on. Especially um, for a father of the, uh, one of the fathers of the Reform Party itself, right? Ted Byfield, right? Exactly. He, used, he used it as a wedge issue to be like, look, folks, 
the conservative, the progressive conservatives and Brian Mulroney have gone soft on South Africa, essentially. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but like that, that was the, that was the general thrust. All right. Like, cause Mulroney brought in sanctions and all these fucking conservatives freaked out. And it was a, it was a way to, for the reform party to attract, you know, supporters of apartheid South Africa to their cause. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, well, I guess one example, uh, is that he had an article in this special pro South Africa issue of International Conservative Insight magazine, which was based in uh, Vancouver and edited by Doug Collins, another one of these figures. Um, the issue title was called South Africa, Hope Amidst Constru- Controversy. Um, <laughs> And I mean, it's kind of like in a backhanded way. It was like a series of questions to Joe Clark, the who was foreign affairs at the time. Look, raising... Michael, they're just they're just asking questions about exactly. South Africa. They're they're not they don't necessarily support the apartheid South Africa's regime. I mean, you know, right. they do, but like we're just asking questions about why you would introduce sanctions to one of our dearest friends. Exactly. Uh, so he said he's raising these alarming questions about Canada's position on South Africa, really taking issue with the with this notion that some people had that Canada was sort of leading the international struggle. He's sort of like, what kind of leadership is this? He, and he, he repeats all these false claims about how sanctions would be hurting black workers. Um, he basically characterizes the ANC as on a mission to murder white civilians and questioning whether South Africa's apartheid, uh, his its human rights record was really so bad. Um, that same, <laughs> that same, it's not, it's not that bad. Come on, come on, guys. <laughs> exactly. Uh, in that same magazine, there's actually, uh, an article by Peter Brimlow as well. Who's another one of these sort of reform party, uh, founding fathers. Um, and this, his article is called South Africa shrugs at sanctions. Uh, South Africa shrugs at sanctions, which argues that sanctions have been basically a boon for white businesses and say that actually they hurt blacks more than whites. Um, and that if the white econ- if it wasn't for the white economy, blacks uh, blacks in South Africa would still be living in primeval poverty. I don't know, not good stuff. No, of course not. Uh, also, a uh, friend of the show, Conrad Black, was has a known history of supporting the apartheid state of South Africa. What can you tell us about? Yeah, our, he, our good friend Conrad. He well, there's a few things to say about him. So he uh, was a supporter of alternatives to the ANC, like Chief Budalezi. <laughs> who was the leader of one of these homelands that the South African government had created. He was, again, officially opposed to apartheid, but um, but people liked to support him because he was opposed to efforts to boycott the country. And, you know, he was the leader of this Bantustan. He supported the homeland system, essentially. So, so you know, as an alternative to the ANC, if you can't support apartheid, uh, you know, or you don't want to support apartheid, but you hate the ANC, uh, Budalezi is a is your guy <laughs> like he's the guy that you want to sort of put for it as the actual representative of South Africans and so um so Black for example brought him to Toronto once uh to give a speech uh as did uh the Fraser Institute actually so um uh, yes. no more friend of the show yeah they, he was this chief Budalezi figure was a very uh key kind of like wedge figure for the conservative movement here in Canada to kind of like use against the ANC because the ANC was this essentially like the big legitimate voice for mm-hmm. black liberation in South Africa. This was one of the like ways to try and create division, right? Yeah. And Budalezi didn't threaten Canadian business interests in South Africa because because he opposed sanctions. So um, so one th- another thing to say about Conrad Black is that he has some of the worst comments on record about this. Uh, so, uh, Renata Pratt wrote this book about her time with the, uh, task force of Canadian churches on corporate responsibility. 
I don't think I quite have that correctly, but it was this church group that was uh, trying to get church churches to uh, to divest their funds from uh, businesses in South Africa. And they reached out to uh, Massey Ferguson, which was chaired by Conrad Black in 1979. And they asked him to, to stop providing equipment to South Africa. And he actually has a quote that it might be worth reading because it. it's, just, yeah. it's just terrible. So he's talking about white South Africans here. Uh, he says, like all other peoples, uh, they have a perfect right to self-preservation. And like all other respectable nationalities, they should be commended for having the collective pride and motivation to defend themselves. I have not the slightest doubt that were your recommendations to be followed by the international community and the white population of South Africa left without any modern means of self-defense, they who almost alone have populated and developed that remarkable country would be eliminated as an ethnic entity by the gruesome combination of subjection, massacre, and expulsion. Mm, yes, the, the so blacks white genocide would, would theory, do a, basically. Yeah, yeah, the blacks would do a genocide on the white people in South Africa if we let them. Essentially, <laughs> thanks, it's, Conrad. It's basically the South Africa has a has a right to exist argument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Conrad Black, bad person. Uh, Stephen Harper. Uh, this this link is a, a, not it hasn't been fully developed, but I know Murray Dobbin uh, with Taiyi described the Northern Foundation. Um, as a which is something that Stephen Harper was involved with early on in it was described as a pro South Africa group but we don't really have a ton of info it appears to be lost to the uh, sands of time what what the northern foundation was up to and what it actually wrote about South Africa is that true yeah i think certainly in sort of the the archives i was going through i didn't find a lot about this but but yeah murray dobbin talks about the northern foundation as essentially founded as as a pro south africa group that took on these other causes uh certainly the uh, the other people associated with the institution, like Byfield and, and Brimelow, they were outspoken for South Africa. And certainly it was operating in this milieu where, again, South Africa was sort of the foreign policy wedge uh, to distinguish the more the real right from from Mulroney's conservatives. So uh, so definitely I think we'd find some interesting stuff if we can get a get some archival documents from the, from their early days. Yeah, if anyone knows where any archival Northern Foundation shit lives, uh, let me or Michael Bucher know. Um, I, 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 the other, uh, again, the the Reform Party existed in this miasma of kind of pro apartheid South Africa sentiment, and that was no better expressed through uh, someone who was near and dear to my heart, of course, uh, who is Stan Waters, the very first elected senator in Alberta, and and so Stan Waters was this uh, figure. He was like a, you know, kind of a major domo, like spokesperson and like old head respected person within the uh the reform party and obviously key to its foundation Uh, he never ended up running for mp but he did end up running in the very first senate election in alberta which of course is fake and we all know that senate elections are fake and we don't elect senators in this country but he ended up uh winning and uh, (laughs) um and this and this guy who was incredibly pro South Africa, uh, apartheid state of South Africa, ended up becoming a senator. Uh, the happy ending to this story is that shortly after becoming a senator, Stan Waters got a brain tumor and died. Uh, but there is a, a quote from him um, that I'll just read right now that it was again t- quoted in that Murray Dobbin piece, which we will put in the show notes. Quote, South Africa should think twice before allowing majority rule because most black African countries live under tyranny. <laughs> 
and you know that was a really common argument at the time it was uh you know south africa might have its problems but you know uh none of these other african states uh have democracies uh in some cases uh you have people saying uh that blacks can't govern themselves uh they can't govern a modern state that was actually something that someone uh mackenzie porter columnist in the toronto sun and the calgary sun actually wrote he said you know men aren't all born equal and and Africans, you know, they can't govern a modern state. Um, if you put them in charge, like it'll lead to, to bloodshed. And like he was the most explicitly racist of these sort of figures. But this argument that fundamentally, like South Africa is too complex, it's too diverse. These people can't live together. You need, you know, stop looking for a Western solution for an African problem, all sorts of stuff like that. Anything to justify not supporting uh, one person, one vote. Yes, uh, there's another figure who we would be remiss to not mention. That is, uh, of course, Tony Clement. He was a, a cabinet minister under Stephen Harper's, um, uh, what, under Stephen Harper's prime ministership. He was, of course, the cabinet minister for gazebos and sliding into young staffers DMs. Uh, what was Tony Clement's uh, involvement with, uh, you know, uh, this pro-apartheid South Africa movement? Well, Tony Clement's a f kind of a fun story. He was a law student in 1986 at the University of Toronto when there was this huge controversy in the city about um, about the law society at the school had invited the South African ambassador, Glenn Babb, to a debate, uh, giving him a, a platform to speak. And there were lots of protests about this. Uh, a couple of uh, professors tried to get that shut down. And eventually the law society did revoke uh, the invitation to the ambassador, um, agreeing that, you know, it was inappropriate to give it to a representative of the apartheid regime. Uh, so uh, Tony Clement and Alan Riddell um, saw this, and they actually decided to break away and form a new law society for the specific purpose of inviting the South African ambassador uh, back to a debate. And so... They just uh, love debate. They, they, they just, just really love debate. Debate was very important to them, and they really needed this. The guy whose entire job was defend uh, to was to, was to defend apartheid South Africa needed to be on a stage to espouse his views. Yeah, they 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 claimed that you know they believed apartheid was uh, reprehensible, but that they were opposed also to suppressing the the ambassador's freedom of speech. Uh, so that was sort of their intervention into this, and I wrote about this in. Uh, an article for the website Africa is a Country, and Tony Clement was very upset in my mentions, saying that, you know, he never supported apartheid, um, all of that kind of thing. All I'm saying is that he formed a law society for the specific purpose of giving a platform to apartheid, um, which was directly at odds with the goals of the anti-apartheid movement at the time. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. The ANC was very specifically not interested in platforming this guy. And they said they told everyone who would listen, like, don't platform this guy. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, this, it wasn't just Toronto. Like there was uh, uh, a, a couple of other events that took place, including uh, a controversy in Queens, a controversy at uh, Carleton University. Uh, in some cases, were successfully sort of deplatformed, um, and it was a huge moral crisis uh, about sort of freedom of speech on on college campuses, which really is just shows you that not, nothing changes. No, the time is a flat circle. Fuck. <laughs> um, there are two other. I, we're going long here, so I do want to kind of just gloss over these two figures. But Peter Worthington, a former longtime columnist with the Toronto Sun and the Sun papers was a huge long time very very yeah. vociferous supporter of of uh, apartheid south africa and uh, the this fucking barnacle on canada's ass will never go away david froome 
even had a little what was his what was his line about well, uh, well david Frum's thing was that you know when he was uh trying to encourage uh basically conservative voters in 93 not to vote for reform but to vote for mulrooney so he wrote an article sort of saying that he's sort of trying to appease these people saying, understanding that they're upset with Mulroney and that Mulroney was worried far too much about placating liberal opinion uh, opinion mongers in Toronto on issues ranging from homosexual rights to sanctions against South Africa. So kind of, yeah, giving giving a little bit of a nod to those people who thought that uh, uh, Mulroney shouldn't have... Look, we know you think that Mulroney has been soft on South Africa, and I hate South Africa too, but... But put that aside, essentially, was was the uh, his interventions. And that's funny. I do want to go back quickly to Worthington because it was really significant. He he gave a huge profile to Glenn Babb in his Influence magazine. He was a big supporter of Budalese, wrote lots of articles about it. And he produced this documentary called The ANC Method, Violence, uh, a documentary and a booklet, which the whole thing was about demonizing the ANC, calling into question the integrity of uh, Desmond Tutu. His bookleted articles like... Nelson Mandela is no Martin Luther King, stuff like that. Uh, and <laughs> it was sent to all MPs, uh, and the costs were paid by Paul Fromm of the Citizens for Foreign Aid Reform, which, fun fact, is today known as uh, as a white supremacist, a very, very yeah, prominent yeah. white supremacist. Yeah, Paul Fromm is a neo-Nazi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this was fact. part for the... <laughs> Yeah, fun fact, not fun fact. I mean, and this is part of the course, right? All of these people and, and organizations, institutions in some way opposed and demonized the ANC. They supported this Boothalazy character as an alternative to the ANC. They opposed boycotts and sanctions. And ultimately, the ANC was effective and they won. Boothalazy was a wedge figure. Boycotts and sanctions are incredibly effective when deployed at scale against, uh, you know, a state and at, at the, the scale it was deployed against South Africa. Like there was a reason why they were fighting against these tactics because they were effective, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, because of sort of business interests that some of them might have had, and just the fact that South Africa was was as an as a topic was within this milieu of of conservative issues, and and that worldview anti communism was really prominent in that. So, so it was just sort of a natural thing for conservatives to to jump on. Mm-hmm. And of course, because we are an Alberta-based podcast, we must, of course, note that Calgary was, of course, a bit of a hot spot for pro-apartheid activism. Uh, what can you tell me about Don Carter and the Friends of South Africa Network? Yeah, so uh, remember how earlier I said that Don, uh, that the South African embassy had created this front network of, of phony South Africa sort of grassroots groups. Uh, and so one of the, I guess the main person that the, that the embassy had recruited to, to organize this was this guy, Don Carter in Calgary. Um, he formed this, his own little Calgary group called the Western Canadian Society for South Africa. Uh, he had a cable program called Don Carter's Southern African Report. Uh, he helped to lead delegations on behalf of South Africa, uh, on, on behalf of the tourism board to South Africa. Um, so, so he did a lot. Of, he was pretty active on this, and he was exposed uh, by the CBC's Fifth Estate as a paid agent for the South African government, working with embassy officials to establish this series of front groups across Canada, um, disguising it as grassroots, uh, recruiting supporters uh, in organizations in Toronto, Montreal, Winnipeg, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Lethbridge, Calgary, Vancouver, and Vancouver Island. I think in lots of the cases, these were probably lone volunteers. Uh, who just were given this name, like Friends of of South Africa, of Edmonton or whatever. 
And then, yeah, uh, Don Carter put this fax machine in the basement of these people's homes, give them daily requests to go and write letters to the editor, that sort of thing. Eventually, he was sort of let go, uh, and the embassy took control of that sort of more directly. But, uh, yeah, he was he was uh, South Africa's man for a while. Man, Calgary. Uh, that, this, this story, that story is insane. And, like, of course, this person lived and worked in Calgary. Just He just loved apartheid so much <laughs> that he, he turned it into his fucking full-time job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so we've focused kind of on conservative journalists. We've talked a little bit about that conservative activist, this this fucking Dan Carter, Don Carter loser. But within the conservative party itself, I guess the progressive conservative party at the time, um, Don Mulroney, uh, sorry, Brian Mulroney was a bit ahead of the curve. He brought in sanctions and uh, against apartheid South Africa in the eighties, really kind of against a large percentage of his party. And again, as we were talking about, this is one of the foundational splits within the conservative movement. It was it was like the key foreign policy issue of the Reform Party as it was getting off the ground. And so what can you tell me about this kind of like who within, you know, the progressive conservative party, what elected officials were speaking out in defense of South Africa, who were who were who was on the side of good? Can you kind of walk me through through the, the political side of things? Yeah. So, again, because it was, yeah, as you mentioned, uh a big issue in the conservative movement. It obviously uh, had this had ripples throughout the conservative uh, party at the time. You know, Mulroney is often understood or sort of celebrated as someone who really took a strong stand against apartheid by adopting a series of sanctions in 85, 86. Um, and there is to an extent some truth about that, um, you know, because he didn't have to do that. There were people like, uh, uh, allies like Reagan in the U.S. or Thatcher in the in the U.K. opposed sanctions uh, very bitterly. So there's no reason why Mulroney had uh, to take that approach, um, but he did for whatever personal reason. And according to sort of uh, I guess the person who really wrote the definitive history of this period, uh, political scientist Linda Freeman, that yeah there was a major split within the party. Um, uh, she writes, there's no question that the prime minister was well ahead of his party on the issue and in some respects almost alone. And so other people who, you know, supported uh, Mulroney's position on South Africa included Joe Clark, his minister of foreign affairs, although he apparently had some doubts about it. Um, Walter McLean in cabinet was an enthusiastic supporter of sanctions. He was sort of, I think, a key figure in pushing the government on this. But you have but so then, many. But then there was a. But then there was a whole coterie of conservative MPs who are yeah. on the other side of this, right? And yeah, it's not like so they many. would just stand up on their hind legs, right? Like these people were going on junkets to South Africa. Yeah, yeah. It was actually very common for conservative MPs to go on fully paid trips to South Africa, these fact-finding tours, see it yourself, and and come back and say, "Oh, it really wasn't so bad." Like you know, they're really trying down there. Like, oh, there's lots of misinformation in the media, that kind of thing. And, and there were lots of these people. Uh, and actually, some people even, like, uh, one thing that Mulroney did was, I think in 86, he imposed this voluntary ban, sort of saying to his to his caucus, like, stop taking these trips to South Africa. And some people actually uh, continued to go and and to defy that order from, from Mulroney. This was how important it was to them. Some of these uh, people who sort of were willing to speak in defense of South Africa in different ways, um, I'm not familiar with a lot of these people, but uh, MPs, uh, Robert Coates, Dan McKenzie, Lloyd Crowes, uh, Donald Monroe, Ronald Stewart, Jake Epp, Robert Wenman, 
David Nickerson, William uh, Van Canute. Uh, so I don't know. There's a bunch of there's a bunch of people. Uh, John Crosby as well, who in the early '80s uh, he was sort of being uh, criticized as he was very pro-apartheid and he was being criticized by Bob Ray and the NDP at the time. He says in Parliament, uh, he kind of he has this retort. He says, "I've gone there and seen you, big loudmouth. Have you been there? You keep your mouth shut till you go and learn for yourself, you professional bleeding heart." And that's kind of the tone that he took on these things. <laughs> ah, you you love to see it, yeah. So, anyways, if you know. Uh, anyone who was a conservative, uh, like a conservative elected official or worked for a conservative elected official in the 80s, ask them if they knew about these people. Ask them if they knew what their feelings about South Africa were, because uh, decent odds, pretty good odds that they were on the wrong side of history. And really, that's why we're doing this, right? Like this is the important part of this conversation is that these motherfuckers would love for us to forget about their support for apartheid and white supremacy in South Africa. But it is incumbent upon us to refuse to forget and to continue to remind them that like you supported white supremacy in South Africa. You supported apartheid South Africa, a a brutal, violent, nasty, like criminal regime that fell apart uh, peacefully in 1994. All the while you were working to demonize the, the folks who were working for black liberation and to prop up the evil motherfuckers who were keeping the system going. And, uh, you know, do you have any like thoughts? I mean, I think broadly speaking, the left is pretty bad at uh, memory projects and at memorializing, um, you know, f- figures and events that are important to it. And, and do, you have, do you have any like kind of like thoughts about how we should be thinking about this and remembering this struggle? Well, I mean, at the, at the bare minimum, it should be included in, in the public memory. So I, I mean, this isn't necessarily like the left's fault. I think this is a, a problem uh, uh, more than anything, or at least one source of the problem is with uh, newspapers and in mainstream media, that whenever these major figures pass away, there are all of these obituaries that totally ignore um, the negative things, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, ne- the very negative aspects of their, of their legacy, you know, whether it's someone like Peter Worthington or it's, you know, uh, a mining magnet like Peter Monk, for example, like, <laughs> there's like so many people who think like, it's just not the right time to talk about this, but you know, those are the moments when the legacy is sort of memorialized. That's when, that is the moment for talking about the legacy of these people. So if it's not, and- then, then when is it? It's never, in fact. And of course, yes. I mean, it's never the right time to talk about the inconvenient fact that uh, a huge chunk of Canadian elite supported apartheid South Africa. That's why it's incumbent upon us to remind these people that they did. And honestly, the the best time to defame someone is after they're dead, because they oh, can't yeah. sue you. They can't sue you. Uh, and two, and two, it's not defamation to just recount the facts about their support for apartheid South Africa. That is also just not defamation. Um, so I really want to thank you for coming on the show, Michael. I think your insight and research into this subject is incredibly important. Uh, you know, I enjoyed reading your thesis. I think it was, uh, it's, an, it's a worthwhile historical document for people to understand how sanctions and boycott divestment sanctions work as a, as a, as a movement. And, and it really was encouraging for me to go back and read that and just see the size and scale and success of the international uh, anti-apartheid solidarity movement. It really is, there's really not kind of no modern analog at the moment. And, um, 
And so I just want to thank you again. Uh, if people want to follow along with the work that you do professionally or personally, what's the best way for people to do that? Yeah, I mean, thanks so much for this opportunity to talk talk about my dissertation, which, you know, that's not usually <laughs> something you get to do as an academic. So I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, you can check me out on Twitter at, uh, at mbukert. Or you can uh, check out the website that I work for, which is Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East at cjpme.org. We actually have uh, launched recently a podcast to talk about some of these issues related to Canada, Palestine, and the broader Middle East, including talking about things like boycotts and uh, questions about apartheid. We recently had an episode with uh, Libby Davies, a former NDP MP who was talking about her time on the Hill as sort of a lone voice for, for Palestinian human rights, especially during uh, the dark days of the, of the Harper era. So yeah, if you want to check that out, that's the CJPME debrief. And other than that, um, yeah, I guess that's it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. If, uh, if you're listening, you have any notes, thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, I am very easy to get a hold of. I am on Twitter far too much at, uh, at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at K at progressalberta.ca. Thank you to Jim Story for editing this podcast. Thank you to Cosmic Famu Communist for our amazing theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>